What is Shaking Fire Nation? JLD here with an audio masterclass that is going to make you chuckle a little bit because we definitely have some interesting conversations. It is the hidden truths behind creative success with Alan Gannett. And Alan's the founder and CEO of Track Maven, which is a marketing analytics platform whose clients have included Microsoft, Marriott, Saks Fifth Avenue, Honda, and GE. He has been on the 30 under 30 list for both Inc. and Forbes. And he's a contributor for fastcompany.com. And he has an upcoming book, The Creative Curve, on how anyone can achieve moments of creative genius. And this book is live. It came out in June of 2018. And I just want to say that he was once a very pitiful runner-up on the Wheel of Fortune, which we get to talk about in a little bit after we thank our sponsor. You've heard me say this before, ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Well, what makes ZipRecruiter so smart? It learns what you like. When you post a job on ZipRecruiter and start reviewing applications, your feedback teaches ZipRecruiter's matching technology more about the precise skills and experiences you're looking for. That's how ZipRecruiter invites more qualified people to apply, which helps you quickly get better and better candidates until you find the perfect one. And right now you can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right free, just go to ziprecruiter.com slash fire. That's ziprecruiter.com slash fire. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So Alan, say what's up to Fire Nation and share something interesting about yourself that most people don't know. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, man. And uh, fun facts, um, when I was 18, I got cast on Wheel of Fortune and um, hopefully this isn't a sign, but I hit bankrupt twice. (laughs) Hey, most of the guests on my show have hit bankrupt at least once in their entrepreneurial journey. So if you're going to do it on a game show, doing it twice, no big deal. No big deal, brother. Um, And we actually talked about this pre-interview, but I want to share with Fire Nation for those of you that might not know, we share something in common, myself and this uh, gentleman, Alan. Um, I was on The Price is Right back in 2011 and I won a car. And by the way, it's on my about me page fire nation eofire.com slash about you can watch me win a car on the price what is kind right of car was it it was a 2011 ford fiesta oh never forget 2011 <laughs> ford, the best ford fiesta model ever it was like all pimped out like 165 <laughs> was like the total it was, it was amazing and i loved it i actually dove over the hood in celebration it was pretty funny um but yeah and uh, if you're if you're more lazy fire nation just go to youtube and just google johnny dumas price is right and it'll pop right up it's the first thing it's it's, it's really fun because I'm going to make it a GIF. Well, like you said, Alan, like you, you did bad with your two, um, uh, your two bankruptcies on that. I played the worst game of the Price is Right I possibly could have played until the very end when I somehow won and, and I pulled it out, the rabbit out of the hat. So anyways, Fire Nation, <laughs> on to the focus of this interview, which is an audio masterclass on the hidden truths behind creative success with Alan Gannett's, the hidden truths behind creative success. I don't know why I can't say truce very well, but you get it. You know, it's not a lie. It's a truth and it's, it's plural. So let's just start off with you kind of maybe just sharing a quick, quick, quick overview about what we're going to talk about. They're going to dive into the specifics. Yeah. So for the last three years, I've been vexed by this question, which is, is creativity really this magical, mystical thing and how we talk about it in our culture? Or is there some more reason and rationality behind it? And if so, how can we actually get better at it? So what I did 
is I interviewed about 25 living creative geniuses. These are billionaires like David Rubenstein. These are um, you know, Pasek and Paul, a songwriting duo behind La La Land, Dear Evan Hansen, and The Greatest Showman, uh, Alexis Ohanian from Reddit. And from this, I also talked to some of the leading academics in this world. And what I found is that there's actually an amazing amount of science about how creativity works and there's actually pretty logical steps to how you can get better at it. And so it all came together in my book that's coming out. And what I found that I think is so interesting is that for the last 30 years, creativity is one of those things that neuroscientists, psychologists, sociologists have all come together. And we actually have some pretty strong conclusions about how and why it works. Wow. Well, I'm excited to dive into this. But before we do, I want to share with you something I didn't know that obviously you probably did since you interviewed him. But I'm not really like up on like current events or stuff like that <laughs> as much as I probably should be. But I didn't know that Alexis Ohanian was married to Serena Williams. Isn't that amazing? I just found that out because I went on HBO and was like searching documentaries. And there's a great documentary on Serena. It's about her life. It's like an episodic documentary. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so the first episode... They popped up, like Alex O'Hanian is walking. I'm like, what's that dude doing there? And then I was like, oh, he's the fiance? Oh, now he's the husband? Oh, now he's the father of her child? Like, I didn't know any of that stuff. He loves her so much. It's like adorable. So Peak much. Adorable. They're like an adorable couple because uh, you got to watch it. It's a great documentary, Fire Nation. I watched it right after I watched uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's documentary, which was unbelievable too. So HBO has got some good documentaries going on. But again, Alan, we're getting distracted because I want you to share the neurological and psychological mechanisms behind these flashes of genius that you uncovered. Yeah, so one of the things I talk about is when you think about a flash of genius, this is usually the sort of the moment that we talk about in sort of the popular stories around creativity. You know, J.K. Rowling was on a train and she was struck with the idea for Harry Potter. Paul McCartney famously woke up and had the melody for yesterday in his head from a dream. We have this notion in our culture of these, these instant moments. And what's interesting is they seem like this thing which is bestowed upon this rarefied few, only some people have it. And for a lot of people, when you start talking about creativity as something that's logical, that's their argument. Well, you know, some people have flashes of genius. I don't have flashes of genius. And so this <laughs> is one of the things I thought was really interesting that I was one of the first things I tackled for the book. And I went and I talked to a bunch of researchers who actually study this stuff. And what's so interesting is that basically what happens is your flash of genius is just one of two types of processing your brain does. And it's kind of cliche when you talk about creativity, you talk about left brain, right brain, but it's actually really important. So what they find is that when they put people in an fMRI machine, they put people in an fMRI machine, when they solve things using logical processing, which is that very step-by-step -step way that you sometimes solve problems. Like if you're solving a math problem, for example, it's very step-by-step, -step, it's logical. It's all happening in your left hemisphere, and it's very conscious. This is where you store your very direct associations of words, definitions, concepts, visuals. So it's all very conscious. It's these very strong associations that are stored in your left hemisphere of your brain. It's like almost like college. Think about it as like your loud lab partner who's like, okay, we're going to solve this problem. We're going to do this step, then this step, and look, we got the answer. Good for us. But then when they put people in these fMRI machines and they watch them while they're having a moment of sudden insight, what you find is your right hemisphere is just going off with activity. And it turns out that these aha moments, these magical things are really just the other way our brain processes through problems. So in our right hemisphere, it's where we store more sort of like 
distant or metaphorical associations and words and concepts. So like when you're watching a stand-up comedian, your right hemisphere is the one connecting the wordplay and figuring out the joke. You're not going step by step like why is it funny and okay, what what's the word association here unless it's like a really bad comedian. And so your right <laughs> hemisphere is doing this work and it's all subconscious. You do this work subconsciously. It's only once it gets the answer that it sort of perks up and says, hey, I have the answer. It's almost like it's like a quiet lab partner. You know, they're working through the problem. They're sort of mumbling to themselves. And once they get the answer, like, hey, I got it. I got it. And if your left hemisphere is quiet enough, if your loud lab partner is quiet enough, if you're not too busy with the world around you, you can sometimes hear what your right hemisphere is trying to tell you. And so this is why we have aha moments when you know we're in the shower or when we're running or when we're on our commute. It's not that those are inspiring, but rather it's the fact that our left hemisphere just isn't doing very much. And so what's so interesting is I interviewed Edward Bowden, who's one of the leading scientists on, on the space. And the thing he told me that really stuck with me is that you know these aren't special. They're just subconscious. That's all it is. They're not this magical thing. And I think we as humans sometimes have this, this willingness to explain things that we don't understand as magic. And you have to be skeptical to that. There's a lot of takeaways from this Fire Nation. And for me, like one thing that I keep jumping towards is these aha moments. And probably one reason why I do this, Alan, is because the first 2,000 interviews of Entrepreneurs on Fire, one of like my four questions was... Give me one of your greatest aha moments and kind of walk us through how you came to that aha moment because I was always fascinated before you know I became a successful entrepreneur and before I launched the podcast. Like I want to hear more stories about these aha moments. Like how can I mimic this and how can I go into details on this? And so for 2,000 episodes, I asked that question. I heard some amazing things on that. I mean, what are your thoughts? Take that away. So this is this is to me one of the most interesting things I found in the whole book writing process was that these aha moments, it turns out there's actually a very clear way to have more of them. And this was to me just this big moment of epiphany because it was so clear and so obvious once it became clear. One of the things I found in my interviews was that these great creatives, these people who are doing these amazing things, you know, we talk about creatives as always doing. There's that social media meme that's really annoying that's like 90% of people consume, 9% of people engage, 1% create, hashtag hustle. And it's like stupid and annoying, but it's also wrong. It actually turns out that the best creators spend an inordinate amount of time consuming content. I talk in the book about Ted Sarandos, the chief content officer of Netflix, who developed his taste for movies because as a kid, he literally was the clerk at the video rental store and watched every single movie in the store. J.K. Rowling I interviewed her first publisher and her first agent, and in her childhood, she, her parents were always fighting, so she would lock herself in her bedroom, close the door, and just read books and books and books and books. And it turns out that one of the key things that scientists have found is that you have aha moments about things you know about. You're not going to connect the dots if you don't have the dots to connect. And the thing you find, the common experience behind these people who have so many aha moments, is they've consumed an inordinate amount of information, of material. You know, Paul McCartney spent his entire childhood surrounded by music. His parents were musical. He literally played in a cover band for years. So, of course, Paul McCartney has moments of inspiration, flashes of quote-unquote genius around music, and you don't because you didn't have that ingestion. So one of the critical things you need to do if you want to have aha moments is consume huge amounts of material in a narrow, deep vertical. 
You know, the myth of being a generalist, that's not actually going to get you to great creative heights. If you want to be a great creative, you have to know everything about a very, very, very small lane. And then you'll have aha moments about this. And I experienced this with the book. It was sort of a little bit of a meta experience because I'm writing a book on creativity. And, you know, I was reading all this academic research on, you know, really wonky creativity research. And what I found is when I was at the gym where usually I have my aha moments, all of a sudden the aha moments were about these like really dorky ideas and creativity philosophy and psychology and these things I never would have had if I hadn't been ingesting all that material. So it actually turns out that consumption is one of the biggest leading indicators of creativity. Alan, say that last sentence one more time because I think that's really the key point of everything that we're talking about here. And so Fire Nation, really take note. Consumption is one of the leading indicators of creativity. I mean, Fire Nation, what are you doing to consume? I mean, this is how you need to move forward, consuming, learning, putting yourself in the right situation so when that opportunity comes, that aha moment comes, you put in the work. I know a lot of people I hear say something about luck, like he was lucky, she was lucky, they were lucky, whatever it might be. Guess what? Luck is where effort meets opportunity. Those people are putting themselves in the right place, putting in the effort, the opportunity comes, and they make things happen. Now, one thing that I think is super fascinating that I know you go into depth about in your book that to me, I can't wait for you to reveal here is how famous people, you know, like Andrew Ross Sorkin or Casey Neistat, how they engage in a strategy called the 20% principle. And the, the reality is anybody can do it. It's accessible to everybody, but we just don't know about it. So we'll kind of break that down for us. Yeah, so I interviewed um, Andrew Ross Sorkin and Casey Neistat, and I tried to interview a very eclectic set of creators, like just very, very wide, so I could not be biased towards a specific industry. And one of the things I found, as I mentioned, was that there was this consumption trend. And usually when they were young, like I cannot tell you how many novelists told me some variation of like, I live near the library and I read every book in the library. I was like, I get it. I know, I know. You've read every book in the library. <laughs> but what was so interesting to me was these people are incredibly busy. Like Ted Sarandos from Netflix, like, you know, C-Level, one of the biggest, you know, internet companies on the planet. And what was interesting when I talked to them, it wasn't that their consumption was just sort of a period or a phase in their life. These great creators are constantly consuming information, even to this day. And what I found is I kept hearing this number over and over again of three to four hours a day, which is about 20% of your waking hours. So I call it the 20% principle. And it's this idea that to be creative, to stay fresh, to stay relevant, you have to keep consuming throughout your entire career. You have to carve out that time, that three to four hours a day of consumption, of consumption. Some of the best creators actually spend almost more time in a day consuming than creating because, and this is actually really important for your audience to understand. This is really important. When we talk about creativity, we often get confused. See, there's two versions of creativity. Academics call it literally lowercase c creativity and uppercase c creativity. Lowercase c creativity is just the physical act of creating something new. And sometimes we get confused because we talk about that. But when you want to achieve creative greatness, what you're really talking about is what academics call uppercase c creativity. Uppercase C creativity is about creating things that people actually value, that they actually find special, that they actually label creative. And to do that, you have to have this intimate understanding of your audience, what's familiar to them, what's novel to them. We can talk more about that. But you have to have that understanding of what's already out there. And so consumption plays this multifaceted role in creativity, much more so than people even realize. 
There's some things that I really want to really make a point, Fire Nation, of what Alan's talking about right here. I mean, one thing that kind of made me chuckle a little bit was when you first started saying that all these authors are like saying, I read every book in the library. Like I was right next to the library. Like, and you're like, I get it. I get it. I mean, I feel the same way when I talk to entrepreneurs sometimes. I'm like, listen, I get it. I know you haven't even said it yet, but you used to sell lemonade as a kid. Like I get it. Like I know, I know you did it. Like, like, you know, like that's just happening. Like I get that. So that's just something that kind of made me chuckle. But something that was a really good point that I want to make sure you get Fire Nation is that we have to consume to learn. We have to consume to learn. And I'm actually a big believer in that consuming and producing, you know, producing, being creative, that's the same thing in a way. How consuming and producing is like this scale, this balanced scale. And, you know, for me, when I launched Entrepreneurs on Fire, like I was only able to produce a very little bit because I didn't have anything worth producing, but I was consuming like 99%. And I was producing just a little bit, just testing things out here and there. But then over the years, you know, that scale has shifted where, you know, I'm now producing more. And as a result, that's taking up my time and I'm consuming less, but I will never stop consuming on a major level. I will always have consuming be a big part of what I do because that's where the next aha moment comes because that's where the next learning comes you'll be outdated at some point right if you don't keep up with your audience and what they're experiencing by consuming at some point you become that guy who had that hit 10 years ago and no one wants to be that who wants to be a one-hit wonder not me (laughs) what's your favorite one-hit wonder song because i have mine Oh my God. One hit wonder song. I'm too sexy for my shirt. How about Ray said Fred. Ray said Fred. Yes. <laughs> is that yours too? No, that'd be so funny if oh it was God. though. <laughs> that was great. I mean, I could sing that song right now. So I definitely know it and I love it. But mine is a song called, um, it was by the outfield and it's called, you know, Josie's on a vacation far oh, yeah. away. That was a one hit wonder. They never came out with another good song. And what a lot of people d- don't know is that wasn't even a group. That was one person. Like he had to hire people just to play play with him on that song then he never came out with something good after that you segue really nicely if you don't mind into <laughs> one of the things in the book i talk about is the difference between one hit wonders and these people who I are like know that. perennial hit hit makers and you know you look at the beatles for example um and what's so interesting about the beatles and we w- there's a bunch of science in here what's so interesting about the beatles is that throughout their 10-year career span they constantly were at the top of the charts so how do they do that right because there are tons of musicians who just strike a hit strike a hit once and it turns out what they did and i'll explain why this works it turns out that what they did is that they were constantly changing their musical um the features of their music and there's an actually a professor who studied this he's an empirical musicology, which is an awesome field to be in. It's the math behind music. And what they did is they would change the features in their music in this very sort of, um, this very sort of gray way. Like it would slowly shift over time. They would add in more experimental song features. And then once their audience became used to that, the next album would have even more experimental song features. And then once they had so many experimental song features that they thought their audience might get bored, they started using less and less and returned back to their pop roots. And what it turns out is that scientists actually have this really fascinating conclusion which is that, you know, we talk about human preference and what we like as this like big mystical thing that we're all trying to crack. But scientists actually have a good hold on it. It turns out that there's two underlying urges that drive our preference. So check this out. The first urge that we have is that from an evolutionary perspective, we crave things that are familiar. And the reason why is that we crave safety. So, you know, if you were a caveman and you saw two caves, one which you've never seen before and one which you've slept in multiple times, you're not going to go in the one you haven't seen before. There might be something there that kills you. So we crave the familiar because of the potential safety that's in there. But then 
we also have this other urge, and it seems like a contradiction. We have this other urge where we also seek out things that are novel because we want potential new sources of reward. So if you're a hunter-gatherer and you're in a forest and you see a berry that kind of looks like a weird strawberry, you've never seen it before, but you know, go, okay, I'm going to try that. Maybe that's a new source of food. And so we seek out novelty for potential reward. But the problem is that this is a contradiction. It turns out that we seek things for that are both familiar and things that are novel. And it seems like it makes no sense until you realize that it's your brain's really elegant way of balancing risk and reward. It turns out that we are wired to like things that are familiar with a twist of novelty. We don't want things actually that are so new that they're scary. We don't want things that are so familiar that they're boring. It turns out the best ideas, the ideas that stick, are the ideas that are familiar with a little twist of novelty. And once you realize this, you start to see it all over the place. Think about the first Star Wars, the Western in mm. space. You know, right now there's this sushi burrito trend taking over America. It's literally sushi in the shape of a burrito. It's familiar, <laughs> but it's novel. When Pinkberry was taking off, it's like ice cream, but it's not. It's tangy. And so what's so fascinating is there's this relationship between our urges for familiarity and novelty, when we first experience something, we don't like it. But then the more we experience it, we start to like it until it reaches a point of cliche where then our novelty seeking wins out. And the more we experience it, the less we like it. Think about that like new Drake song. The first time you hear it, you're like, nice for what? And the third time, you're like, oh, this is pretty good. And the 10th time, you're like, oh, I like this a lot, but I'm getting a little bored. The 15th time, you're like, please stop playing Drake. <laughs> and so it turns out that what these creative geniuses do, what these creative geniuses do so well is that they're able to balance familiarity and novelty. They're able to create the right amount of a familiar experience with the right level of novelty that it captures your interest without feeling unsafe. And this is so important. This is why musicians use samples. This is why um, story story writers and screenwriters use historical story arcs. They're not reinventing how stories unfold. It's because as people, we actually also like things that are familiar. It's not just about novelty. Fire Nation, going through this, I really want to make a couple key points. Number one, humans. That's us. We are walking contradictions. We are walking contradictions. We crave safety. We want the familiar, but then we also crave novelty. We want something that's just a little bit different. It's about weighing that risk and reward, Fire Nation. How are you weighing that? You need to find the balance. And Fire Nation, we're going to talk about finding that balance when we get back from thanking our sponsor. Fire Nation, I'm here with Ian Siegel, the CEO of Zip Recruiter. And Ian, it seems like Zip Recruiter is constantly optimizing and looking for new ways to help employers. What's a recent product feature you're excited about? The number one pain point for employers is finding qualified candidates. Everybody gets a bunch of candidates when they post a job, but it's really difficult to find qualified candidates. And one of the things that we discovered at Zip Recruiter is that when you get 30, 50, 70 candidates, sometimes it's hard to go through every single one of the people who applied and make sure you give them appropriate consideration. We built a feature at ZipRecruiter called Great Match. And what that does is straightforward. Our algorithms go through all of the applicants who apply to your jobs and sort the very best matches right to the top. It makes it trivially easy to see who the best applicants to your job are and to make sure you never miss a great candidate. 
Fire Nation, we can get to that finish line, but can you make the right decision when you're there? Because even after you filter out unqualified candidates, you can still get dozens of qualified ones, and reviewing even just a few can take a long time. Great Match is almost like having a personal assistant to prioritize the best, because you don't need to review all your candidates, just the best ones, and you can do that with Zip Recruiter. Zip Recruiter takes a lot of the pain out of the high process. It starts with their powerful technology, which scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right skills, education, and experience, and actively invites them to apply to your job. Then, as Ian said, Zip Recruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. It's no wonder Zip Recruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. based on Trustpilot ratings of hiring sites with over a thousand reviews. And right now, Fire Nation, you can try Zip Recruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash fire. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash F-I-R-E. ZipRecruiter.com slash fire. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, Alan, we're back, and I want to talk a little bit about what we we're just kind of wrapping up with on that last point and really getting into the imitation side of things and how that allows you you know, to actually create ideas that have that right mix of both familiarity and novelty. So kind of bring us into that world. Yeah, so in the second half of the book, I break down these what I call the four laws of the creative curve, and they're these four things you can do to enhance your creativity. The first one's consumption. The second one, actually, is imitation. You know, so often we talk about creativity as originality and newness, but as we talked about, it actually turns out familiarity is crucial to it. And so what you find is when you talk to these great creatives, they often have stories of imitation. So for example, Andrew Ross Sorkin told me in my interview with him that how he learned to become a writer, because he became a journalist in the New York Times when he was 22, is he literally took front page business stories, he took front page business stories, and he would outline them. You know, how did they start? They start with a thesis, a quote, an anecdote, a story. How did they build that argument? What was the framework of these successful articles? And this actually turns out, you see, over and over again in history. Ben Franklin writes in his autobiography about how he learned how to write. And how he learned how to write was he literally did the same thing. He literally took old issues of The Spectator, which was a magazine back then, and he outlined how the articles were developed. And that's how he learned the structure of a persuasive argument. You see this in music, you see this um, in movies, you see this over and over again, where it turns out that because we like the familiar, what's so important is to learn what is that familiar structure of success? What is that baseline? What is that, dare I say, formula that your audience is going to feel comfortable with? Kurt Vonnegut, the famous novelist, at one point thought he wanted to get a master's thesis in anthropology. And he ultimately left because he said, quote, unquote, I didn't realize how stupid primitive people were. Um, But before (laughs) he left, he almost finished his thesis. And for his thesis, he literally went through great novels and he mapped out on a chart the positive and negative emotional state of the story over time. How did it change? Did it go from rags to riches? Was it a Cinderella story? Was it, you know, started high, went low, came back high? And he found there's these four recurring ways that stories unfolded. This is one of the foundational things he experienced as a young writer. And so it turns out that because familiarity is also part of creativity, imitation is the shortcut for learning the familiar. So what are those four ways that things unfold? Oh, my God. Let's see if I can remember them. Uh, Rags to riches, a Cinderella story, 
Man in the Hole and a Franz Kafka story. Um, I did that from memory. That was good. So that Franz Kafka good. story, um, it starts bad and just gets worse. Um, a Cinderella story, uh, you know, starts bad, gets better, gets worse again, ends unbelievably well. Rags to Riches is a slow climb up. Harry Potter is an example. Horatio Alger. Yeah, you're killing it. Um, <laughs> and then Man in the Hole is something happens. Um, something, someone's good, something happens, lowers them, and then they spend the rest of the story, whether it's a novel or TV show or a movie, fighting back up. And it's actually really funny because there were some computer scientists, and I feature them in the book, who they did a study um, where they took all these novels from Project Gutenberg, which is an online library, and they ran it through all this modern um, natural language processing. And they found that they found six, but they found there was these six recurring patterns of stories, and four of them were the same ones that Kurt Vonnegut found. <laughs> and so what's amazing is that this, this process, you know, it seems almost a little too cute, almost a little too organic, but actually when you run math and computers against it, you see the same thing. There's these recurring patterns in the stories that we like as people, and once you learn that as a novelist, that gives you a leg up because now you're not focusing on how do I reinvent a story arc, you're focusing on how do I introduce my characters? How do I add texture? You add the right amount of novelty. Have you ever studied K-pop? So honestly, I would love to. It's on my <laughs> list. Because everyone, people, you're not the first to bring that up because it is, it's such a great example yeah. of there's familiar and there's novel. Even Amer American pop's a great example of this too. I talk in the book about Max Martin, the Swedish hit doctor. And uh, Max Martin literally in any year has about 10% of all the number one singles for the year. Like it's crazy. And um, he has all these other songwriters who, who he's mentored and taught. And some of them have talked over the years to the press about his structure and his formula. And what he says, how he writes pop music, which is so fascinating, is that he makes sure that with any song, part of the chorus is in the first verse or in the introduction. So by the time the chorus comes, that's already familiar. You've already heard it before. It's already sort of going on in your head. It's not this radically new thing. And so what's so amazing is there's some people, the Max Martins of the world, who figured out the sort of rationality and the systems behind what makes us tick, and that's what makes them so valuable as creators. They understand how to balance these things. Yeah, ABBA did that incredibly well, and they actually yeah. go through how ABBA did that, like introduce that tune, and then they repeat it during the chorus, and why that was like such a cool and just successful tactic. And I got something for you, Alan. You're going to thank me later, I have no doubt, but <laughs> uh, Fire Nation, just in case you're not sure, K-pop is Korean pop, so Korean pop music. And there's a new Netflix original show called Explains, and I think it's either episode one or episode two, one of the two. I think it's actually episode one is K-pop Explained. It's a 20-minute oh, episode cool. on how K-pop went from, you know, nothing, because literally back in the 90s, you couldn't do anything in Korea except sing like patriotic songs to the explosion of K-pop and like now why literally... Um, there's Korean pop, you know, bands and just people in the United States that, that have the highest popularity of anybody. And it's just like absolutely insane. Like something like, you know, at the time of this recording of this uh, show explains like 74 weeks at number one. And like, That's we, crazy. It's, it's 
just insane. You know, like you see Justin Bieber and then like Drake and all the other people. They're like at they're topping out at two because they just can't get over <laughs> the K-pop. The K-pop is just stuck at number one. Period. So really fascinating stuff is called Explained on Netflix. So we're doing a lot of talking about <laughs> different documentaries and things today. But yeah, my watch list is getting big. Yeah, <laughs> I want to chat right now about the importance of creative communities and how specifically some successful people have utilized them to reach their success. Yes. Yeah, so there's this myth that, you know, these great creators are these individuals and it's been propagated, you know, I hate to say fake news these days, but it's, you know, hashtag fake news. Cause you think about, <laughs> um, you know, Elon Musk is on the cover of all these magazines. You talk about Steve jobs, but like the truth is like, you know, Elon Musk has some of the world's best rocket scientists working for him. Steve Jobs had Steve Wozniak on day one. Like he had Johnny Ive later on. Like there's this mythology around the solo genius that has been dramatically oversold in Western culture. And the reality is that, again, when you're talking about creativity with a capital C, which is creating things that people actually care about. It turns out that other people are essential to this process because if no one sees your work, if no one experiences it, how can they judge whether or not it's creative? And so one of the things I found in my interviews is that all of these great creators also had people around them. And I break down in the book some of the different types of people they have. The one that I think is most interesting is what I call a prominent promoter. And this is different than a mentor. A prominent promoter is specifically someone who lends you their credibility and you find this over and over and over again in every creative field. So in music, for example, it's like pretty obvious, like um, Taylor Swift became famous after opening for Rascal Flatts. Shawn Mendes became famous after opening for Taylor Swift. Now Shawn Mendes is doing a stadium tour and has people opening for him. Um, in academics, you typically see senior researchers allowing junior researchers to put their names on their papers, even if they weren't huge contributors to it, because it gives them something to put on their resume for the future. You see this over and over again in creative fields, where there's this idea that the older generation will find younger people and give them a boost. In startups, there's an advisory board, there's your board of directors, and that is actually one of the most essential things. And there's an issue, though. One of the issues is that since creativity is such a people dynamic, such a social dynamic, it's incredibly difficult to do creativity outside of the locus, the center of that creative field, right? You can you know, be in fashion outside of New York, but it's incredibly difficult. And even with computers and the internet and all this stuff, it's still incredibly difficult because you need to have those relationships. You need to be able to get coffee with someone to build that bond so that they're going to lend you their reputation. They're going to lend you your credibility because ultimately creativity is a social phenomenon. Social phenomenons, Fire Nation. I mean, this is something we need to keep our fingers on the pulse about. It's so important because the world's always changing. New opportunities are always coming. Like that next thing is coming. Like what'd you miss? You miss something? Guess what? You have an opportunity to get the next thing to jump on board with that. And I think one thing that a lot of people get wrong is that, you know, iterations as a creative are essential. Like you just never become a creative success story on your very first try. And I keep pointing back to, you know, it's like 10 years to becoming a quote unquote overnight success. Like these things take time. You've got to put in the swings. You've got to put in the effort. Like I have now recorded over 2,030 interviews. Like I'm putting in the swings here and I'm still improving. I'm still getting better. I'm still screwing up and I'm still doing all these things. Like iterations 
are key. So what would you say about that, Alan? Oh my God. I mean, this is one of the things that I think is most frustrating to someone who studies creativity is that people have this notion of like, okay, I am um, you know, going to go and write my great American novel in my apartment in Williamsburg. And once I hit the end, that's when I'll start showing it to people. <laughs> But like, that is not at all how these great creators really work. I mean, J.K. Rowling actually took five years to write her first book. Um, There's this one interview with her where she shows the 15 different versions of the first chapter of book one that she wrote trying to get the right version. And you find that these great creators, because they realize that creativity is so much about the audience reaction, they incorporate feedback from their audience early and often. And they use that feedback to drive through these iterations because ultimately what their goal is with their creative process is how do I create something the audience will love? Which means how do I create something that's the right balance of the familiar and the novel? So they have to be able to put themselves in their audience's shoes. And often the best way to do that is to listen. You see this, for example, in the movie industry. You know, we think about movies as these very linear things because we watch them start to finish. But actually, these days, you know, before movies even greenlit, they're actually testing the idea and the concept and seeing whether or not it's interesting to people. As they're actually filming it, once they get a rough cut, they're actually showing it to test screenings to see, okay, are there characters that people like or don't like? Um, You know, the movie Fatal Attraction, which did so well in the box office, so well in the Academy Awards. They actually, after a test screening, completely reshot the ending because the original test screening, uh, the original ending, a, a fatal attraction, people didn't like it. Mm. And so the ending that we all think of as this sort of psycho horror movie, that was actually an iterative fix because people didn't like the original one. And that's the point of creativity is to create something so an audience actually resonates with it. That's such an important part. And I think we have to move our own egos out of our creative process if we truly want to be creatively successful. I think there's this notion of, oh, I just create for myself. And I think it's honestly, and some people don't like this, but I think it's gratuitous. I think ultimately the point of creativity, if you really want to be creative, is to create something that spreads a message that has an impact on people. And since that's essential to the process, you have to listen and you have to be iterative. The hidden truths about creative success, Fire Nation. Alan, maybe just take a couple minutes here, a couple seconds, however long it takes to tie this up with a bow. Like, how do you want to sum up this audio masterclass? One of my worries, and I end the book with this, one of my worries is that, you know, I'm laying out here's steps you can do to be more creative. What I'm not saying is I'm not saying it's easy. It's actually incredibly hard. It takes huge amounts of thoughtful hard work, not just hard work, but thoughtful hard work to become a creative genius, a creative master. But it is possible. And so if you're telling yourself that you can't do it, if you're saying, well, it's easy for that person, but not for me, you're giving yourself an excuse. If you want it hard enough, if you want it, you can achieve these things, but it will take a huge amount of work. There are no silver bullets. Fire Nation, there are no silver bullets, and that is the truth. So, Alan, that was just a great tie-up of this entire conversation, but also I want to end with a parting piece of guidance that can be either related or unrelated to this, just like overall parting piece of guidance from you for Fire Nation. Give us then the best way after that where we can connect with you and you know more information about your book and any goodies you might have, and then we'll say goodbye. This isn't related to creativity, but one thing I've just found in my career as an entrepreneur is that Um, the long game is so important. It's important in any field. Have integrity, do the right thing, and over time, you may be surprised, especially if you're young, like I am, 
You may be surprised over five, 10, 15 years, but you'll see that doing the right thing pays off later. Um, thank you so much for having me. The book is called The Creative Curve and the website's thecreativecurve.com and my company's website's trackmaven.com. Fire Nation, win the long game. Win the long game. And you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with, Fire Nation. And guess what? You've been hanging out with AG and JLD today, so keep up the heat and you will win that long game. And of course, head over to eofire.com and just type Allen, that's A-L-L-E-N, in the search bar. And his show notes page will pop up with everything we've been talking about today, links to his website, to his book, all that stuff. Um, these are the best show notes in the biz, Fire Nation. Timestamps, links galore. Alan, one more time, give us those URLs. Thecreativecurve.com and trackmaven.com. Alan, thank you for sharing your journey with Fire Nation today. For that, we salute you and we'll catch you on the flip side. Bye. Hey, Fire Nation. Hope you enjoyed our chat with Alan today. And if you're ready to discover your big idea in just three hours, well, I've created an amazing system and it's going to get you to that big idea in three hours or less. And it's going to get you on that path to success and freedom. The sky's the limit after that, Fire Nation. Visit yourbigidea.io. That's yourbigidea.io. And again, this is free training from me to you. I poured hundreds, not hundreds, let's be honest. I poured tens of 20s of man hours into this training a lot, a lot. And I really know this is going to be very valuable for you. So I will catch you there or I'll catch you on the flip side. You and I both know hiring quality candidates isn't easy, but there's a place where hiring is so simple and smart. Zip Recruiter. Post your job with one click, then Zip Recruiter does the work for you. Their powerful matching technology scans millions of resumes across this network of hundreds of job boards to find the right people for your job and then actively invites them to apply. So you get qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try Zip Recruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ziprecruiter.com slash fire. That's ziprecruiter.com slash fire. ZipRecruiter. Once again, the smartest way to hire.